This episode of The Off-Ramp is an encore performance of an earlier holiday show. What charming, colorful Christmas tradition was actually invented for efficiency? Ah, okay. In the classic movie, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Grinch was described with three words. What were they, Bob? Answers to those (laughs) and other questions as we head for the holidays in this edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. To the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, the holidays really do tend to give you some good perspective on the things that really matter. And I have a question for you, Marcia, about the holidays and what charming, colorful Christmas tradition was actually invented for efficiency? For, uh, um... I'm trying to think. The fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That makes absolutely no sense. I, I don't know, Bob. The Christmas card. Oh, okay. It was invented by a man named Harry Cole. He was a very distinguished British civil servant. Very busy man. Very busy man. <laughs> he actually organized the British Postal Service and designed the first postage stamp. So he knew a lot about mail. <laughs> I guess so. And he was very busy. And in those days people wrote long holiday letters to friends. Oh, I, okay, yeah, now I remember this guy. Yeah, so it was 1843. He had no time for that, so he came up with a solution to reach out to his large circle of friends. He hired an illustrator, John Calcott Horsley, and they invented the Christmas card. They were so popular, he actually set up a little company to sell them, and they took England by storm. From the beginning of 1,000 Christmas cards, which were hand-colored, to an industry we have today. And he signed 1,000 Christmas cards. Wow. Yeah, yeah, 1,000. You think you've got a list that's big. (laughs) Yeah, not really. How he started selling them was through newspaper ads to to sell people for the next Christmas season. So he invented a whole new industry, a labor-saving device, the Christmas card. Most of us don't think of it being a labor-saving device. It's like, no, oh my I'll god! I'll tell you what's a, a Christmas a labor card sa- list. Uh, sending a Christmas email. That's what's labor-saving. That's saving. a labor-saving. <laughs> so Marcia Smith invented the Christmas email. <laughs> That's right. And who? I didn't even have time for that. Okay, this is short and sweet, Bob. In okay. the classic Christmas movie, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, a perennial favorite, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Grinch was described in three words. What were they? You know, I never really watched that show. I mean, I've heard of it. I've heard the songs, but I never watched the show. Well, let's watch it tonight. So tell me what the three words were. Stink, stank, stunk. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that is fast. Yes, it is. That is fast. (laughs) Well, I got a few fast ones, too. Okay, good. first fast ones. Give me a bunch. In the early 1800s, the first gingerbread houses were reportedly inspired by what famous fairy tale? The first gingerbread houses. Uh, Trying to think. Was it uh, uh, the... It's a German fairy yeah, tale. Yeah, I was going to say, was it a Mother Goose thing? Was it was it, one of those. Was the, not the lady in the cupboard or the Hubbard or whatever? No? Oh, no, not Mother Hubbard. Yeah. Hansel and Gretel. Oh, of course. They had a gingerbread house, yes. Yeah, that's how, that's where yeah. most people think that gingerbread houses were Became a tradition. inspired by. Okay, how many reindeer are featured in the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas? Okay, all of them, which that's where Rudolph was introduced, nine of them. No. <sighs> Just the opposite. There Uh, were eight of them. Rudolph wasn't there. When did he come? Where did Rudolph come from? I just happen to have some information on that. Of course you do. (laughs) Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came from a song that Johnny Marks wrote. 
It was based on a book by a man named Robert May, and of course, Gene Autry is remember for the first recording. Of oh, it. that's right. Yeah, I had a little red record that he sang. <laughs> How long ago do you think that was? When did he record it? That's my question. Oh, bef- uh, when? He introduced the song at Madison Square Garden in December 1949, the Christmas 49. season. Forty-nine. Forty-nine. Oh, so it had been around by the time you and I were kids. Yeah, and his recording of the song sold over 8 million records. Well, it's probably gone well beyond that. That was the first 30 years. And the total record sales by all artists amount to well over 110 million copies, second only to White Christmas. Really? Yeah. So Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came from a song based on a little book. Yeah. And it's not from the original Dasher and I'll Dancer be, yeah. and Prancer. I'll be darned. Okay, what traditional Christmas decoration is actually a parasitic plant? Oh, that sounds so sweet. Um, parasitic plant, Christmas decoration. It's not holly, is it? No. Not mistletoe? Yes. Really? <laughs> mistletoe oh. is a parasitic oh. plant. Oh. That's sad. Yeah, I kiss you under that. <laughs> okay, but wh- what is it parasitical to? I don't know. I think it's just one of those. It's like a weed, I guess. I well, don't know. I, I have think, to look into that well, more. Well, you should Google that later. Yeah, well. Let's get our facts down. Okay, <sighs> okay, Bob. How many Americans celebrate Christmas? How many out of 10? Just, uh... Okay, so, uh... It'd have to be from the, the Christian tradition, loosely at least, in some way. I would say 7 out of 10. That's pretty high. I was stunned at this number, 9 out of 10. Oh, you're kidding. 55% consider it a religious holiday, and 33% think of it as more of a cultural celebration. I think it's become more of a cultural celebration. Yeah, yeah. I, even the Jewish in our family celebrate Christmas. It is a great celebration. For what about the also. merchants who think of it as a commercial celebration? Well, that <laughs> that has to be some of those nine of ten. They, it's got to be. <laughs> You're right. It's got to be some of those people. <laughs> yeah, I just found that that's from countryliving.com. Oh, that's so, funny. Nine out of ten. Okay. All right. What was one of the great Christmas Eve traditions of the 19th century? I didn't know about this until I read it in an article in the Wall Street Journal. So you can see this great tradition in the works of literature. What was one of the great Christmas Eve traditions of the 19th century? Of the 19th century, Christmas Eve traditions. uh, Making Tom and Jerry's. No. (laughs) There you go again with the Tom and Jerry's. I don't know, honey. Favorite drink. No, it's telling ghost stories. Oh, really? Yeah. And this comes from a Wall Street Journal story, The Darker Side of Christmas by Regina Hansen. So apparently in the 19th century, one of the big things people did, especially in America and Britain, was tell ghost stories at Christmas time. And you can see that in the works of authors by Henry James, oh, for instance. Oh. The most famous example is... Scrooge. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. He was visited by... Three ghosts. That's right. That's right. But Charles Dickens didn't just write one ghost story for Christmas Eve. He wrote a series of ghost stories published yearly at Christmas. I didn't know that. I didn't either. Another one was called The Signal Man, in which a railway worker received ghostly warnings of impending accidents. So ghost stories on Christmas Eve were a thing. They weren't invented by artists like Charles Dickens. They were reflected in their work. I'll be doing that, little Dickens. I had no idea. This is, there's some really other sad things about Christmas, dark things when you think about it. Well, let's not go there. Okay. There's so much dark things right now, Bob. Okay. You know how uh, the day after Thanksgiving every year, I put uh, our little 
ca- uh, electric candles in the windows in the front of our house. Yes, I do that, and they stay there till they, till they just burn out, which is usually around Easter. They, I just never turn them off. It's just a lovely glow in an early night. That's mm. the way I look at it. But the question is, where did the tradition of putting candles in the windows start? Hmm. I have never thought of that. Is that a Christmas tradition? Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, don't know. Well, I was, was thinking this is another one of those uh, things that goes back to Victorian times and, you know, all this and that. No, nay, nay. Goes back farther than that? <laughs> no. No? 1930. Oh, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. It was from Colonial Williamsburg. You've been there, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So... A Williamsburg historian put lit candles in the window of historical buildings that were open for business during Christmas. He wanted the shoppers to know where they could shop. Oh, no kidding. During Christmas. So that's how he did that. And people who visited thought it looked charming and took the idea home with them. And that's why Marsha Smith has done it, you know, how many years later? <laughs> so again, 90 years later. A commercial thing yeah. that started on yeah. Christmas. And by, I thought it was some charming I ancient tradition. Had no idea. No, me either. No idea. I'm still going to do it. I, well, I'm still a, <laughs> that means people can come over here and shop. It's very, yes, they can shop. <laughs> come in and buy any of the toys we have under the tree. <laughs> So, you know the story of the sleeping children in Clement Moore's poem, The Night Before Christmas? Yes. Remember, there's this line, visions of sugar plums danced in their heads? Indeed. So what are sugar plums? Well, they're plums with sugar on them, Bob. No, they're not. Okay. (laughs) I knew that was too easy. Okay, sugar plums, uh, raisins? Well, they are no, actually a fruitless candy, believe it or not. Oh, no kidding. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Yeah, so um, they were long-forgotten candy, very labor-intensive. This comes from uh, Michelle uh, Debzak, writing for Mental Floss. So uh, according to The Atlantic, the sugar plums English speakers ate from the 17th to the 19th century contained mostly sugar and no plums. They were made by pouring liquid sugar over a caraway seed or an almond, allowing it to harden and then repeating the process. This candy-making technique was called panning, and it created layers of hard sugar shells, and the final product was roughly the size and shape of a plum, which is how it became associated with the real fruit. What year was this? 17th century. Okay. Yeah. So that was a thing. So this was before the day of candy factories, so these sweets could take several days to make, and that's why their labor-intensive production explains why they were a luxury good Uh for special occasions. So children would be dreaming, maybe we'll get sugar plums. that's sweet. Have you ever made candy of any kind? I don't, yeah, I'm sure I did when I was a kid. I don't remember ever making candy, but it's. My mom like, used to make fudge and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and cookies and. Okay. Well, that's, uh, I had no idea. That's very interesting. All right, Bob. Although Shabbat is the most important holiday in the Jewish faith, many of us are more familiar with Hanukkah mm-hmm. because it falls near Christmas, so we're aware of it. Yes. The eight days of Hanukkah has just passed. And the menorah displays nine candles, with four candles on each side of the middle one. Why, why are there nine instead of eight to celebrate the eight days of Hanukkah? I never thought of that. I'm just used to seeing that, the beautiful symmetry of those candles, yeah. with and that the, one in the middle being yeah. the biggest one. Actually, it's just taller. It's just up taller. Okay. It's the same size as the others. Placed the, higher. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you don't know, do you? No, I don't know the answer. You want to guess? Yes. What's the answer? <laughs> the middle candle is called Shama's. You light it first, and it's used to 
light the other candles. It's just the helper candle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wonder if the Advent candle tradition came from that Jewish tradition. Well, me too. I was just thinking about that. At our church, they have that big candle in the middle. That's for Christmas Day. And then you light all the weeks around it, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Sundays prior to that. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So, but I'll bet it did. I bet they did too. A lot of uh, Christian things came from the Jewish traditions, I think. All right. I have uh, two questions. It's a one question and then a follow-up question. Oh, I'm all ears. What modern-day country, in what modern-day country was St. Nicholas born? Oh, that was uh, Germany, Austria, Germany. Which one? Germany. Wrong. Austria. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They're both wrong. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm toying with you here. It's like a cat toying with a mouse. Uh, Turkey. What? Turkey, Yes. St. Nicholas was a Christian saint. He was called St. Nicholas of Myra. He's also known as Nicholas of Berry. He was oh. an early Christian bishop from the maritime city of Myra, which is the modern-day city of Demra in Turkey. And it was during the time of the Roman Empire. It's believed he lived from 270 to 343 AD. Now, how did he come to be known as St. Nick or St. Nicholas? Wasn't he really benevolent? He was always giving out uh, toys to kids and uh, food and treats. He was a gift giver, yeah. He was, uh, many miracles are attributed to him. He was uh, known as Nicholas the Wonder Worker. Did he come down a chimney? Not that I know of. Oh, okay. But he was a patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, (laughs) prostitutes, children, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, and students in various cities and countries. They almost covered everything, everybody but the retired people. Yeah, that's a cross-section, I'd say. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And his reputation evolved among the faithful because he had a legendary habit of secret gift giving. So that gave rise to the model of Santa Claus, St. Nick, or Sinterklaas. So that, I thought that was kind of interesting. And that, but there was actually a person named St. Nicholas. He was a bishop in the Christian church, 270 A.D. to 343 A.D. was his lifespan. Wow. That, look how long ago that in was. Turkey. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, you probably you, wouldn't think of that. No, no. I'll be darned. A little add-on to that one. What, oh, what does St. Nicholas <laughs> or Santa Claus and pawnbrokers have in common? Well, doesn't that where Santa gets all his toys, doesn't he? Get him from the pawn shop? <laughs> no, he doesn't get his toys from the <laughs> oh, pawn shop. Oh, I'm sorry. Shop. I get, I, right. Good Lord, Marsh. <laughs> They're made in the workshop. <laughs> Not the pawn shop. The workshop. By Will Ferrell and friends. And apparently legend has it that the Bishop Nicholas once brought a poor man three bags of gold as a dowry for his daughters. And those three bags of gold can be seen today symbolized as the three golden balls hanging outside pawn shops in the sign. Come on. Yeah. Pawn shops have three golden balls? Well, that's the traditional sign, yes. Maybe not the ones you go to (laughs) where you pawn off your things. but (laughs) Just the things you give me. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? We'll be back with more of The Off-Ramp in just a moment with Bob and Marsha Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Let's talk New Year's Eve. Okay. In 1908, what classic New Year's Eve tradition was begun? 1908, what classic yeah. New Year's Oh, that must have been when the ball first was dropped from Times Square. You know, you really get on my nerves sometimes. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. Of course, there aren't that many New Year's Eve traditions. Uh, raw beef, uh, <laughs> noisemakers, yeah. and all midnight. But yes, you got it. The first time 
It's called the Time Ball. The first Time Ball in Times Square, New York City, was dropped in 1908. Wow. It was all made possible by the invention of a Victorian contraption in England called the chronometer. The chronometer. Uh-huh, which helped sailors at sea navigate. And a British Royal Navy officer named Robert Washhope brought it our way for a New Year's celebration that continues to this day. What did the chronometer do? It helped them navigate. So what did that have to do with the ball dropping from Times Square? It it comes down for an hour, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Ticks off. If you saw a picture of this contraption, you'd see, oh yeah, I guess you could do a, a time ball drop to the chronometer depth box. Interesting. <laughs> just, just take my word. It came from England, Victorian England and the sea, the okay. Royal Navy. And he brought it over here. And the New York City had already started celebrating the, Times Square. in Times Square, but they didn't have any big thing that happened at midnight. So and, that was it. Yeah. Well, over 100 years ago, geez. I never think of it being that long ago. I think of the 20s or something. Yeah. Okay, I've got some more on mistletoe. Okay. Did you know uh, mistletoe was considered sacred in the pagan rites of the Druids? Not the Druids, your family, but the (laughs) Druids. They thought it had magical powers of healing. And in ancient Roman legend, when enemies met under the mistletoe, they were forced to lay down their weapons, kiss, and declare a truce until the next day. So that's when Christianity arrived in Britain. The bishops outlawed mistletoe from church decorations, mistletoe, and Christmas kisses. But this whole idea of kissing under the mistletoe became kind of a Christmas thing. Really? Yeah, even though it was not that. The holly bush, uh, where do you think that came from? What What country? The holly bush, what country? Uh, well, was it Scandinavia? It may have been, but in medieval England is where they trace it back to. And superstition had it that the holly bush had special powers against witchcraft. So unmarried women fastened sprigs <laughs> of the it's holly always, bush. It's always unmarried women. Unmarried women always waiting for yeah, the men. Yeah, yeah, how come not the unmarried not the men. guys? Men, men's, men never worried about it, but unmarried women... <laughs> Fastened sprigs of the holly bush oh, to their yeah. beds at yeah. Christmas time to keep themselves from being hexed. Yeah. And to early Christians, the holly bush symbolized the burning bush of Moses. And its prickly points and red berries reminded the faithful of the infant born on Christmas Day would someday wear a crown of thorns. Again, going back to the darkness of well, Christmas. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one. You think of the three wise men. They yeah. came to the Bethlehem baby, Jesus and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the darkness of that story? There's uh, a darkness there. Well, are one of those things uh, to ward off evil? One of those things is used in embalming. Oh, myrrh? Myrrh. Yeah. So that was considered like a foretelling of what was to come. Oh, really? Yeah, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. For instance, one of the verses of the hymn, We Three Kings... You know, you, they start talking, uh-huh. we three kings, kings of all, you know, they're almost marching slowly, you know. But there is one verse that says, myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering doom, suffering, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. Oh, that is cheery. <laughs> well, again, darkness of, you know, yes. Christmas, there's well, some darkness. Well, here's some lightness, Bob. Okay. How, how many Santa's reindeer can you name? Dasher. Dancer, prancer, victim, donner. Victim. <laughs> Vixen, sorry. Vixen, that, that's that's a name for sexy young ladies. Uh, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, and Rudolph. Comet. 
You forgot comet. Oh, comet's in there, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very good, honey. All but one. That, uh, yeah. See, it stays with you. Even when you're a senior citizen. So who created the jolly fat man that we think is, uh, we as we see, Santa Claus today? Who created him? Yeah. Oh, that was a cartoon, wasn't it? He's a drawing of the fat Santa with a red suit and a wide belt and a white beard. Was that a Thomas Nast cartoon? Very good. I'm impressed. This is why I married you. (laughs) This arcane, useless information. Yes, I have plenty of it. (laughs) I know. Lots of it. (laughs) Never fails to He also did Uncle Sam, so that's uh, he was a cartoonist who did that too. Yep. And I think, uh, I think. Actually, and he at first, I think it came out through Coca-Cola ad was uh, the first time we saw that vision. Well, that's of, one of one of the modern visions. Yeah. 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 That was one of my, was going to be one of my questions to you. What beverage brand's been using Santa in its advertising for 90 years? Yeah, that was, that was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. They started in 1931. Okay. Here's a, I got a few more here. You know, the birthday of Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer? No. Take a guess. Oh, he was born on Christmas Day. Yes, very good. Okay, I figure that makes That's sense. That's deduction, Bob. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> now, let's talk about the Yule Log. Where does that come from? Ah, uh, the Yule Log. And it's a pre-Christian tradition. Yeah. It comes from Scandinavia. Okay. Where a log was burned at the end of each year as a way of doing away with the old year's evil and to rekindle the hearth fire which was the center of family life. Uh-huh. The Vikings carried the custom to Europe where firewood that burned during the holy night on Christmas Day took on special significance. So with great ceremony, families chose the biggest log they could find, sometimes the whole trunk of a tree, and brought it into the house. <laughs> oh, those Vikings. If they're not slaughtering, they're, they're making They're Mary. bringing entire trees into the house. And each year, a part of the Yule log was saved to light for the next season's fire, and its ashes were scattered to bring good luck. So that was the tradition of the Yule log. came okay. from Scandinavia. There's a, all those traditions and, uh, come from all over the world. You have a whole Christmas file over there, Bob. Yes, I do. For good Lord. <laughs> Any good trivia expert would have. Okay, uh, according to legend, what holiday goodies were shaped to resemble a shepherd's staff? as a way Candy to re- canes. That's exactly right. As a way to remind children of the shepherds who visited baby Jesus. Because candy canes go back centuries and centuries and uh-huh. centuries. All right. What well-known Christmas carol became the first song ever broadcast from space in 1965? In space, the first, oh. We talked about it last week on the show. Yeah. So why are we talking about it again? Because this is the first Christmas carol broadcast from from space. From space. Okay. Um, I think I could remember last week. Was it uh, religious or holiday-ish? It was holiday-ish. Jingle bells. Jingle bells, yeah, <laughs> which doesn't mention Christmas. And our friend Stephen Short, who was listening to the show in San Francisco, said it doesn't mention Thanksgiving either, Bob. Yeah, yeah it was It just, was written for Thanksgiving. It was written for Thanksgiving, but it's just about jingle bells. Yeah. Let's go to yeah. Grandma's house and yeah. have a good time and yeah. blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. Let's hang out with the bells. Now, here's another question. Twas the night before Christmas. We talked about that. That was originally published under what name? What was the original name of that poem? Why would I know that? Because you are married to me. <laughs> we made this clear a while ago. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Twas the Night Before Christmas was originally published as A Visit from St. Nicholas. That's the name of the poem. Okay. Originally. A visit. That makes sense. We take the first verse, the first line yeah. of the first yes. verse, and we say, well, that's what it's called, right? Yeah. Twas the Night Before Christmas. Uh-huh. Well, 
Okay, and here's my question. My last question for you on the rapid round of Christmas. Okay, Christmas Wha- the rapid round the of rapid Christmas. Wound, <laughs> the rapid round of Christmas questions. Thank Here you. Here we go. This is the final. Are Thank- you ready? Thank you, Elmer. Or should I say, are you ready? What holiday movie sequel includes a cameo by a future president? Oh, actually, it was Donald Trump. And what was the movie? Home Alone. Home Alone 2. Okay. Yeah, featured a cameo by Donald Trump. All right. I got it. All right. Now, you've got something to wrap it up, Marsh? I do. My my final question, Bob, is can you tell me who was Virginia O'Hanlon? That must have been the, yes, Virginia, there oh, is a Santa Claus. Boy, you just went right there, didn't you? Well, Virginia, Christmas, Santa Claus, of course. I believe in Santa Claus. Well, so do I. I believe in Virginia. She is uh, She is the eight-year-old girl who, in 1897, wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Sun. And she asked him to please tell the truth. Is there really a Santa Claus? And I read his response every Christmas, every year. I just <laughs> do, do. Yeah. It was a long, lengthy, uh, wonderful response. But I'd like to have just the first two paragraphs. And that's how I'd like to end the show. And because I know I'll cry, I want you to read it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got it here. It's just those first two paragraphs with the parentheses. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They've been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except what they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant, in his intellect, as compared with the boundless world around him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith, then no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. No Santa Claus? Thank God he lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. Amen. Okay, Bob, thanks. That is some letter, and that's only an excerpt from it. I know. Thanks for reading that. That's from the New York Sun, September 21st, 1897. As I sit here weeping uncontrollably. (laughs) Well, that's it for this Christmas edition of The Off-Ramp. We hope you and yours have a wonderful holiday if you celebrate it. And we hope you'll join us again when we come back for another episode. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Happy holidays, everyone. Bye-bye. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.